we're having a celebration next Sunday for moms, for mothers, from women of all ages. You are worth celebration, celebrating, and there's, uh, there's not a celebration too big to honor uh, the ladies in our lives. And this is the place to bring um, uh, your mom, your grandmom, your great aunt, your aunt, your any lady in your neighborhood. And, and if they don't have a church home, bring them next Sunday. They'll get a, uh, a, a flower on the way out. And um, uh, we're going to have some form of refreshments uh, next Sunday as well. And, uh, but I want to tell you, invite people who know Miss Marty. Uh, because this will very likely be the last time that she'll be teaching and ministering from uh, on a Sunday morning from this stage, and and, uh, and until they move to Colorado. Now we might just have to fly her back every now and then, you know, <laughs> to get her back in here at times. But um, uh, she has a gift of teaching, and we quickly realized it wasn't just for children. And, uh, and yes, she's ordained as a children's minister, but yet the gift was much beyond that. And we have always received uh, from the Spirit of God and the Word of God important teachings as she taught. And I believe all ladies are just going to be built up and edified uh, next Sunday. So excited about that. Um, I'm excited uh, because uh, I get to see my wife and daughter tonight. Uh, they are on the road. Uh, Delisa uh, went to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma to go get uh, Jana and bring her back uh, with all of her stuff stuffed into the car. And uh, But I just, as a grandpa, I was just so blessed. So uh, just a few days ago, Delisa was there and she FaceTimed me because Judah, who is just over two, my oldest grandchild, was asking for Papa. Aww. Yeah. He was asking for Papa, my oldest grandchild. He couldn't put it all in really good English, but he was saying, Papa, Papa. And he was, she put it on FaceTime. I saw it from my own self, and I was just like, oh, this is good stuff. All right. Yeah, I'm liking this. He's calling my name. I'm going to have to leave and go visit him again in a couple weeks. Sorry, folks. I just, I don't know how I'm going to stay out of that car on the interstate. I'm just going to have to see him more often. But uh, I'll try not to say a grandchild story every Sunday. I'll space them out every other week, okay? But uh, that just got to me big time. Woohoo! Yeah. All right. Well, we are in the book of Matthew, specifically a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is just... So much meat in these chapters, three chapters. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, that means every time Jesus spoke, it was read. Well, that's three chapters all read. No interruption. Really the longest recorded uh, teachings of Christ all put together in one place. And so I've been asking the Lord to help break it down because there's so much in it. And so we are in going to be finishing out chapter 5 today. Uh, it's, this is a Christ handbook for a blessed life. I, I just love that, that when you go to a job and they give you all this paperwork and things you have to sign and trainings you have to do, and they give you this handbook, and it could be 10 pages, 20, 50, it could be 100 pages, and you know most of you, if not all of you, you don't read it. 
He goes in a drawer and until something comes up and you're like, you know, you can't, you ask the person next to you and they don't know the answer and then you look. But Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount, he condenses and puts meat of things that we really must have in our walk with Christ. And so this is our handbook for not just a blessed life, but a happy life. And last week we dealt with the eight Beatitudes. These are eight virtues with eight promises producing salt and light for the world. He describes how we're the salt and light, and you take these eight virtues, characteristics with you wherever you go, and I'm just going to run them down real quick as, as a quick review from last week. It was like, how happy are you when you're poor in spirit? Because you'll receive uh, the kingdom of heaven. When you mourn, you'll be comforted. Uh, when you're meek, and when, and that's having a gentle strength that you'll inherit the earth. And when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. Uh, we'll go on to the fifth one. That, oh, happy are you when you're merciful because you'll receive back mercy. And when you're pure in heart because you'll see God. And when you're a peacemaker because you'll be called and identified as a son of God. And, and even when you're persecuted for Christ and for righteousness, you're, he said, get extra happy. Really rejoice and be glad because there's eternal rewards for you going to stack up. I, I think it's going to look kind of, uh, it's going to be obvious when we're in heaven and, and we'll see this unique stack of, of jewels and rewards and, and, uh, with someone and we'll go, oh, they were faithful in persecution. They stayed true to the Lord and they were bold and they spread God's word and who knows, maybe they're a martyr or maybe they're, we're going to see who with these special uh, eternally were rewards who receive those. Lord, help us. I want to. We want to receive some of those incredible rewards. And those eight characteristics, they are salt and light in the world. And it's like when the rapture happens and when God says it's time to bring my people out of the world into heaven and we all disappear, this salt and light's going to go in every area of life and community. In the area of government, in the area of schools, of the workplace, all of it. But right now, we are here to be that salt and light. And if no Christians serve in local government or state or federal government, then there's not the salt to preserve truth and justice and to preserve our community. If, if we don't have teachers and administrators in public schools and private schools, it, God sends them in both. But if they removed out of education, the children wouldn't have this salt and light, to, the light of God to guide them. If, if in the workplace we just only worked in, uh, among Christian people, then we wouldn't have light in the darkness and every business would be uh, uh, succumb to the temptations of this world. We are partnering with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, and he sends us as salt and light into the world. I want us to start now in verse 17. This is really a summary statement that Jesus is needing to make to his audience who were Jewish people, that all the Sermon on the Mount uh, and future teachings in Matthew point back to. And he need for the Jewish audience, he needed to make something really clear. And let's look at it now. It's verses, Matthew 5, verse 17, verse 20. 
He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whether then, uh, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpass, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for a Jewish audience to hear that statement in the last verse there, that, that their righteousness is to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, that would have just totally intimidated them and blown their, their minds away. Because in the Hebrew Scriptures, as is, there's, in our Old Testament, there's 615 plus, depending on how you count them, commands in the Bible, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's a lot to take care of. And they basically break down in several categories. You can have a lot of categories, but there's the moral uh, laws and commandments. There's the ceremonial uh, when they're going to sacrifice and have worship, and they're at the temple. There's a bunch of you know, laws theirs, and then there's the civil uh, judicial laws of, in the community and how they relate together. There, there's 615 plus. And then how to, how to work that out is called the oral law and a couple centuries uh, after, uh, uh, in, in, in their, after a while the oral law was written down by rabbis who would say, okay, this is how you honor the Sabbath. You know, it's not just honor the Sabbath, but you know, this is what you do and you can't do, and you can't do this and this. And so hundreds of more rules were added to the 615. And the scribes and Pharisees, they were trying uh, to show how spiritual they were by trying to obey all of those. And even adding some more. Let's add some more rules in that day and age. And so when you hear this, this Jesus is saying, you've got to surpass it. How can I, any of us surpass it? They work at this so hard, they still don't do it just right. I mean, how in the world is this going to happen? Well, I want to tell you in this passage and these the Beatitudes on through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll just see repeated over and over again. This principle, that the external righteous deeds, they come from an internal source of Christ's righteousness. If you get that up on the screen, that's a synthesis of really this whole Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus will come back to it later in the book of Matthew. That external righteous deeds, even no matter how good they look, they must come from a deeper place, an eternal source. And for you and me, that's the righteousness of Jesus. Aren't you glad that you don't have to earn your way to salvation? Aren't you glad you don't have to earn your good, through good works, a level of righteousness that will get you into heaven? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for all of us, that if we give our heart and lives to him, we ask him to forgive us, and he really does, his, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and we are suddenly and eternally righteous before God. And we could, like the uh, criminal thief on the cross next to Jesus, you go, you're going to be with me in paradise today. Be cleansed and healed of all of his sins. And that day, even though hours later, maybe minutes, he died, he was with Jesus. 
And with that reality of Jesus living in us, then we can also be transformed in the way we think, in the way, in the way we, uh, what, how we're motivated, what um, uh, our belief systems, and then our actions as well. Even in the next chapter, we'll find the Lord willing as we keep studying and digging deeper is that Jesus uses the word hypocrite a handful of times in the next chapter and onward in the book of Matthew. He even gets really direct and has a confrontation in Matthew 23 with these particular uh, Pharisees and scribes he's talking about. And he says, woe to you. Eight times he's saying judgment to you because, and he, and he describes it as, you were, you were like a, a dish or a plate and you only washed the outside. But inside the cup, it was still dirty and nasty. What are you doing? You wash the inside of the cup first and then the outside so that you go to the inside first. So Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount and onward is saying, you're you're going to surpass the Pharisees and scribes in righteousness because it's going to come with, from within. It's going to be internal. And that's where it starts. That's where it begins. And out of that will flow a lifestyle and actions and deeds that will be salt and light to others. Paul takes certain several letters to go into this. Here is a just a couple of verses where he really hits it on the nail very directly. It's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And it goes like this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Let me just stop there for a second. See, this is Paul is referring to those 615 laws. Those ceremonial laws about what to eat and not to eat in, and in order around the ceremony uh, in respect to the festivals that they would, six festivals, have tra- and travel to Jerusalem and, and they would celebrate those or a new moon feast or what, how to uh, conduct a Sabbath day. This is exactly these, what Paul is saying is don't let someone judge you regarding to those Verse 17, these which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, this is how he doesn't abolish the law. He honors the law, but he fulfills it in himself. And his righteousness in us allows us to fulfill it. That these are mere shadows. These 615 laws, they had purpose to them. They had design. They helped people to look who, G, who the Messiah would be and how, where true righteousness comes from. It, was, it had purpose, but as a shadow, it wasn't the substance. A shadow, you can see it and you try to you step on it and try to grab it. And, and you can. It's, it's there, but there, it's pointing to something real, something with substance, something of reality. And that's what these 615 laws did, is point to the real thing, the real righteousness through Jesus Christ, the sacrificed lamb, the true Messiah who's come for us all to make us whole and pure in him. 
Now, in so this that that's just that's just a principle, a foundational that we'll see all through this Sermon on the Mount and onward in Jesus' teachings. Today, uh, I'm going to deal with another list. It was eight last week, but Jesus sets up another list, and it's six warnings that, if heeded, will bless your personal relationships. They will bless you. They'll make your relationships happy, and you'll be uh, uh, fortunate to live out these relationships in a way that God says. But these six warnings will give us six principles, and I'll have those listed at the end. So in relationships, if you get, if there's, if there's an obstacle and you don't know what's going to happen, if it gets stuck, if it looks like it's going downhill, these six principles may be one of those that help unstuck, help you go over the obstacle or the, uh, the conflict that is not getting resolved. This is a handbook for relationships. So I'm going to ask you to dig in in your heart, have your ears open to the Lord and his word and say, Lord, there's got to be something I need here. Help me, help me see it, help me hear it. And again, as Jesus speaking to a Jewish audience, he begins each one of these six with a phrase like this. You have heard that it was said, or you heard that in the ancient or in days uh, of old. And what he's saying is these 615 uh, uh, commands or the oral law on how to live them out and all these rules and, and traditions and sayings that we have now in our Jewish community, you've heard that it said, well, I'm going to take it deeper. We're going to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees and go to the heart. So we have, in a sense, six passages to read and a principle to get out of these. So let's start with the first one. This Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Going through verse 26. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering and there before the altar and go. Leave, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Wow. That's some hard standards to live by. Lord, help us. How do we apply these things? What's the principle that we can get out of here? Well, we're obviously seeing that the beatitude of happy are those who are peacemakers will be called sons of God. Here it is. Here's, here's how we can live this out. And so though the Bible does teach that all anger is not sin, uh, it, it says that, you know, when you're angry, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And so not all angry, anger is necessarily sin. But it says, uh, be careful because anger, uh, when it turns into bitterness... 
defiles many things. And so here's a warning about anger. And it's damaging effects on relationships if you let it linger. Listening to this name-calling, you good for nothing, you fool, you this and that. I mean, he's just letting us know that unleashing of rage and anger where you're name-calling people is just going to stir up that conflict, that strife. And we read that in Proverbs, how anger can be like a, like a, a flame, a, a campfire, and if you stir it and poke it, it's going to get all stirred up, and it's all going to get a bigger flame. So it's a warning about our anger. But I really love this example. Even though we don't have a temple where we're taking an offering, we live every day of our lives as worship to God. And, and we still kind of see, particularly as good charismatics, that worship is one of the most uh, powerful, climatic things we can do in our spiritual life. And yet here Jesus is saying that even at that very serious time of worship, there's something else that you might need to do to really be truly authentic in your worship. And that is to make it right in a relationship. And he talks about this. He says, uh, this is verse 23 and 24. When you're presenting your offering at the altar, and they remember, oh no, maybe it's the Holy Spirit reminding you uh, that uh, uh, your brother has something against you, then 24, leave your offering there. Just stop what you're doing. And leave there and go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So the timing of this is important. It's not something you procrastinate. Now next Sunday, if all of y'all during worship start leaving and calling, get on the phone and get in your cars, I mean, I, maybe he wants you to do that, maybe not, I don't know. But he's saying promptly, as soon as you can, Make that relationship right. Well, Stephen, you just don't know what they did to me. You don't know what happened and, and that what they said to me. And so, yeah, it's probably mostly their fault. Because I know you, you're just like almost perfect, if not perfect. So it, it probably wasn't your fault. It, it might even be 95% their fault. 90 or 85, just most if not all their fault. But that's part of what will happen when the Holy Spirit convicts you is he'll show you what your part was. How you stirred up that fire. It could have been a name. It could have been a judgmental statement. It could have been an attitude. And you, you have 5, 10, 15, 20, probably not 50, you know, or 51, not definitely more of the 50, 50% is surely less, it was your fault. But there's something in there. This is a purifying process. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants us to be more like him. And we uh, are humble and, and we want to be honest about our own participation in that misunderstanding, conflict, that strife. And to go to them and just say, I just want to ask forgiveness about what, how I said it. But, but I, I'm, I'm calling because I want to apologize because when, when I went in and we got in that argument, what, what I said here, I shouldn't have used those words. You, you, if the Lord is purifying you and highlighting things that you shouldn't have said or done, then own it. 
Well, it was, it's, you know, it's still not going to help because, you know, it was most of their fault and you couldn't be... Well, I know, I know. I know. But perhaps that seed of being humble and before them is going in, in, in desiring peace, being a peacemaker, they're going to go, oh, wow. Well, m- many times they'll say, well, yeah, well... I appreciate you calling or I appreciate you sharing. But it was, you know, when I said this, that was... And then, boom! It gets restored. Or the restoration process has begun. So initiating restitution is on us. Even if it's not mostly your fault. Initiating restitution is on us. To go first and pick out that part that you can confess before them. Let's go on into the passage. Um, This is verse 27 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it... Throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You know, this is a figurative uh, statement that Jesus is making, well, hold it now. If you say it's the word of God without error, then it can't be figurative. It's got to be all literal. Well, when you're a reader and you read something, it's obviously figurative. It's figurative. When you read something, it's literal. Obviously, literal, it's literal. You don't need a PhD to figure that one out. And Jesus being figurative here, but he's illustrating that beatitude Oh, blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That have a hunger and thirst that will do whatever it takes to get that that lust, that sin that keeps from coming back. They'll do whatever it takes to get rid of it. There's a hunger for his holiness and purity. And that will be filled. And and Jesus is saying, yes, you, you, you remove it. And the principle is this, remove the source of that temptation. Or remove the means of how that temptation flows to you. You get rid of that. It could be certain Netflix TV shows that you're getting binge watching. And you're watching what's happening to your attitude and actions after you watch that show. It could be certain music. It could be apps. Even a friendship where you're not... salt and light to them they're instead influencing you and they're pulling you down and the temptations are getting greater and greater and it's affecting your walk in closeness with god and purity holiness in relationships this is figurative i I can tell you because we don't have any records of jesus having altar calls Come down now, all those who want your hands cut off. We're going to do some amputations today. Tomorrow we're going to do some eye gouging. So look forward to that. And we're going to get rid of some eyes tomorrow, okay? We don't have any record of that happening. It would have been in the historical account. 
but yet hunger and thirst for righteousness because these, even what they look like little sins compared to your friends or other people around you, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, take care of it, remove it. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 say this uh, about temptation, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's little fish hooks and then big fish hooks and then chains and then padlocks and lock you up in such darkness. It started with compromising on what your eyes are seeing and what your ears are are hearing and little things that, oh, yes, so many people do it. It can't be that bad. And then over time, the devil's sneaky. He grabs you one little bit at a time. So remove the source of temptation. Don't just ask forgiveness over and over again and keep doing the same thing. Talk to someone, get counsel, get a brother or sister to pray for you. What is it? What's the means? Because I need some help here. Let's go on to the next warning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. It was said, whoever sends his wife away... Let him, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Yep, it's those verses in this Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of the reasons why it's hard to just preach through the Bible. Could you come up on a hard scripture that's hard to understand and hard to apply? So when you're not preaching through a, a book or something, you can just, oh, this fits here and this, this message fits over there and not get to that one for a long, long time. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of do that to you today. In Matthew 19, Jesus has more to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So we'll get to it. And it's going to take at least one sermon because of the complexities of working with people who might get a divorce. There's Old Testament scriptures that play into this. There's other New Testament scriptures from Paul. There's other ones of Jesus. And, and you've got to bring them on all in to see the angles and how it all fits together. And then it helps a pastor or a counselor in the counseling room trying to apply these principles in real life. I want to say uh, this, though, and the principle I believe that we'll uh, get out of this is that if you look at the, even the, the highlight of the terms here, Uh, used in these two verses, the word divorce is used. Unchastity is often uh, uh, um, used in your versions as sexual immorality. You have uh, adultery um, twice here in this two verses. That these are things that attack the covenant of marriage. Covenant is a lifelong faithfulness. It's not used very often in the world. It's a biblical term. It needs to be used at every wedding ceremony many times because it's what marriage is. It's a covenant of lifelong faithfulness. 
And these things that he points to are showing either the breaking of covenant, covenant or attacking the faithfulness of covenant. And what I found, and, and as, a, as a pastor, I just want to you know, let you know, and I, I really want you to know this, that it breaks my heart as much as anything as a pastor when we finally, and usually it's Dolores and myself, doing counseling with a woman or, or a couple, that we hear from this spouse or maybe the couple together that there's no hope for our relationship anymore. We are done. We have gone through this now for months, not even years, and, and, and we're the first time that we're hearing this as pastors of the local church. I can't tell you what that does to me. I am as sad as I ever get. Because it's, it's really dire. I mean, this is, this, the wounding has gone so far, they don't even have hope to work on this. And, 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 and I'm going, why didn't you come a few months ago, a few years ago, however long it's been, why didn't you come? With the Lord who was there at your wedding covenant vows, he was there providing grace for this lifelong covenant. He, he, he has grace. He has wisdom. He's got healing for you. And you waited until now? And so that meeting is just, just to spark hope again. Let me just, before you walk out of this room, spark hope. Don't quit yet. Don't separate. Don't get divorced. Don't do it right now. Let's try God's with his, with, with the covering that, that has to protect the, the marriages and families of this church. Please give us a chance. Don't do it. Get, get, let's meet again. Don't do this. We can find God in the midst of this pain because that's what it is. It's pain piled on top of each other on top of it it's gone into just callousness and maybe even just true just bitterness and hate for one another so we're surpassing the righteousness of the pharisees on sadducees well okay let's see what did moses permit a certificate of divorce let's this no jesus is going to the heart of the matter and that is faithfulness have you been faithful to the covenant? And I find that there are many, unfortunately, things that over time can really beat on a marriage faithfulness. Verbal abuse. Lust and pornography. Financial mismanagement. A selfish indulgent. Not caring about anyone else in the family but their own. And it just beats on the faithfulness to the marriage The way the kids are treated. We're a family. What, what's going on? And so there is, so here's the principle that I'm seeing in these few verses. Again, I, I do, I need to take at least a whole Sunday to try to unpack this to give you the feel of the complexity and yet the hope that Christ and his word brings. Is that purity in the process of restoration reestablishes faithfulness. <clears throat> That when both go back to that being pure and a poor in spirit, then humble and say, okay, this is something that I've contributed to this breakdown of this marriage. That's some, let's not t- figure out who did the worst, did the most. Let's just humble ourselves here and let's admit our faults and ask God to begin healing our pain. That that process, which often takes 
goes into months, if not years. But it, it, that purity in the process reestablishes faithfulness that has been broken and beat on. And, and it's like there's, there's hardly even covenant here anymore. But God can heal and touch hearts in a process of restoration and reestablish faithfulness to that covenant. So that's all I'm going to give you today on that one. <laughs> Let's go into the next warning uh, in principle here of verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair a white or black, unless you use coloring. Verse 37, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. And what happened in that day of that Jewish culture is that they, uh, again, these, this oral law, these rules just expounded on by the rabbinical teachings was that you had different levels of, of keeping your word, either depending on what you swear by. If you, uh, you know, make an oath or a promise or a vow that uh, by heaven, well, that's really big, or the throne of God, well, then you better, you know, be 90% sure on that. Uh, but if it's on the footstool of his feet, well, it's not so important in Jerusalem, but that's his holy city. That's important, but not as important as heaven. And then you just go on uh, on your head or whatever. And it was it's, it's like you weren't really held true to your word depending on what you swore by. And if we catch ourselves saying, oh, I promise, I promise. Why do we have to, I promise, I promise repeatedly? Because you, you didn't keep your word before, so now you've got to add some emphasis. I promise, I promise. Those talkative people like me, preachers like me, we talk too much and gets us in trouble. We've got to be careful when we talk too much, huh? Our words can give us, get us in trouble. We can make commitments too quickly if you're impassioned emotionally. You say, oh, I'll do that and I'll take it. Well, watch your emotions before you make that commitment. You quiet introverts, you're, you're, you're so good at this because you're careful with your words. And so you, your words don't get you in trouble nearly as much. And, and you don't make big commitments and, and, until you've really thought it through. And, and, and then when you say something, it's like, wow, that's so wise and spiritual man that was awesome but it's a biblical principle to talk less and be careful what you say people who work with me know that when i say i'll meet you at two o'clock that may not happen that in my scheduling of things and and how i ended up you know getting the phone call and how this you know appointment went long or whatever and then you know i'm calling you and it's 201 saying i'm on my way i'll be there in a while well that gets old for the people after a while and i regret that for them and people who work with me know you have given me a lot of patience and i appreciate it and a lot of mercy i'm praying for that mercy to come back on you So 
So just the principle is the good old American tradition, right? Came from Judeo-Christian values. Honor our word. That's just where this comes from. You don't have to swear, I swear, or I promise, I promise. That's a trait of meekness where that quiet strength is the person when they do talk, they mean what they say and they say what they mean. And we trust meek people and we give them more because can you handle this for me? Because you're, you're, you're meek, you're trustworthy. I want to give you more to, to take care of. All right, let's go on to the next one. I'm not rushing though, really though. Let's go to the next one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Lord, help us capture this and the principle from this so we can use it and live by it. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth. That's justice and they deserve uh, punishment. They deserve retribution. They they should get what they deserve. And here we are. Yet there's that beatitude. Jesus said, oh, you're going to be much happier if you're merciful because you receive mercy. This whole concept of being slapped on the right cheek, if you think about it, most people, uh, you know, are genetically right-handers, about 90%. I know you lefties are very proud of your distinction and and uh, your handwriting is kind of weird, though, but, you know, it's okay. And most people, you know, if you're going to slap somebody, hit them, it's boom, with their hand, right hand coming across. Well, that's the other person's left cheek. But coming back on the backhand is a understanding of an insult. It's not really, are you trying to start a fight? Jesus is not saying if someone starts a fight and slugs you, you know, give me the other cheek. He's saying if someone insults you, even to the point of slapping your cheek with an insult, that in that day was, was a high level, you know, it's hard to get any more insulting than that. And he's saying, be pure, be merciful, turn the other cheek. Let him insult you again. If you want this whole thing of being sued and take a shirt, you know, if we get in a suit, should you double it and say, no, they should take all my cars too? I mean, is that what that means? It means that there is a heart in the matter that even when you're getting sued, that if the person needs a coat, give them a coat. A heart that stays soft, even in the midst of a conflict like that, where you're being accused and you're being sued. This idea of walking two miles, not just one, again, is in the, the culture of that day, the Roman, Romans oppressed the Jewish people, and they set up this rule. I, I guess it had the parameters on it, so it was 
was kind of a nice role in the sense, you know, a Roman soldier or someone else, you know, has a lot of backpacks and supplies and things. They can just grab any Jewish person and say, come, take my stuff for me. And instead of going two, three, four, five, ten miles, they were only required to go one mile. That'd mess up your schedule, wouldn't it, for the day? You're carrying all this stuff, getting hollow, hot, and sweaty. And he's saying, listen, be generous. Be, go deeper than the scribes and Pharisees. Don't just meet the law of one mile and throw the stuff down after a mile and say, there, I'm done. I've obeyed the law. You carry your own blankety-blank-blank stuff. The one mile comes and you keep walking. What salt and light to that Roman soldier? What, what are you doing? Well, the mile's right here. I know. I'll go with you another mile. Salt and light shining bright in front of that Roman who needs to hear about the true righteousness. So the principle out of this, these uh, teachings of Jesus is let our hearts be free of revenge and bitterness so that the spirit of generosity will flow. Even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of, of, of uh, a very painful process, let the Lord purify us. We hunger and thirst for his righteousness. How can we then live uh, in the midst of, in this relationship that those who are trying to make life harder, we can instead be merciful. Let's go to the last one, and I'm going to ask the praise team to go ahead and, and come on up. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you, have those, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you, do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I was uh, in a prayer meeting one time in Pennsylvania, early 2000s. There was about six or seven people there. The facilitator of the, of the, uh, the, the prayer time was someone I respect, an older gentleman that um, just really honor him and a man of prayer. And, but he was, as he was praying, um, oftentimes he'd use a phrase, and, and Lord, we agree together for this, and we agree together for that, and that's normal, and that's fine, I'm good with that. But he being a very strong pro-life person and very worried about what was happening politically at the time in our federal government regarding uh, the, the saving of unborn children, he said, and Lord, we pray for judgment on such and such and such leader. And, you know, he just kind of kept praying. I said, well, hold on, I, I, excuse me. And this verse was in the back of my mind. And I said, you, you are saying we agree uh, together as a group, and I, I'm 
just don't feel comfortable saying that prayer. I want to pray for that leader. I want to pray for abortion to stop. If God wants to judge someone or something, that's, that's his work. But I don't feel comfortable because Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If that's something that he feels right before God or whatever, let, that's between him and God. But don't just assume that everybody in the circle is, is there like that. And, I, and this is where I came out. I believe Jesus wants us in hard relationships, hard times, even when there's enemies, seemingly to be enemies amongst, amongst us, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities in heavenly places. And that Jesus wants us to keep praying and loving in the hardest of relationships. In the hardest of relationships. And, and it's interesting that th- this is going back much to when you're persecuted. To pray for those who persecute you. Because so often we think, okay, I, I don't, I'm, a, I'm afraid to share the gospel. I'm to share to pray for them. I'm, share to t- I'm a little nervous about talking about the Lord because they're going to ridicule me or they might get upset at me or whatever. And Jesus said in the Beatitude, listen. When you're persecuted for, for my sake, there's extra rewards. Get extra happy. I don't think we should look to uh, try to get persecution and say things in a way that we will try to get ridiculed. But let's not have fear of it. God said, listen, I'm going to give you some extra rewards of happiness and eternal rewards. Rejoice and be glad. Just a quick review of these, so you, if you didn't take notes, you can real quickly. This is uh, that list of six. Lord, help us with this. Let this be from an eternal place, the, the righteousness of Christ, that we initiate restitution. That is on us. It's our responsibility to do that. Number two, that we remove the source of temptation or the means by which it comes Consistently, Let's get it out of our life, even if it's a great sacrifice. Number three, purity in the process of restoration reestablishes faithfulness and honors the covenant. And that is a key in marital relationships, even broken ones, ones without hope. Number four, honor our word. Keep our word. Number five, let our hearts be free of revenge and bitterness so that the spirit of generosity will flow and keep loving in the hardest of relationships. Lord, we hear you in these six warnings and principles for personal relationships. This handbook that wants to bless us, it wants to Bless us with more happiness. We're so grateful, Lord. We hear you. I've received a specific uh, thing to pray over us about as we leave. And um, it was from the group of ladies who pray before church. And if you're not aware of this, at 930, 
uh, in the prayer house over here in the parking lot. There's a, a group of ladies that pray uh, over, you know, the service and pray as the Lord leads. There's a group of men that meet over here in the uh, Streams Cafe at 930. And those are open uh, to you guys to join that. But she said, when the ladies prayed, we prayed for those who were under character assassination to be healed of wounds. Arrows to be taken out of their back and healing balm of Gilead to be applied. And that is so needed when there's woundedness woundedness in a relationship, being a marriage, a family, a friendship, or uh, when there's just brokenness between people. We often just need healing first, and that's what Jesus wants. He wants to heal us so we come to this restoration process uh, in, a, in a new and better place because God has healed our wounds. So this is an important prayer, and I want you to receive this. If this applies to you, I want you to encourage you to get prayer from others as well uh, if this is something that still lingers in your heart. Lord Jesus, the wounds of our heart from words that others say to us or do to us, well, God, they're deep wounds. And you see every single one. And you understand how it happened. You understand what happened. Lord Jesus, you're our good creator and you're the one that restores our soul. And so we ask for that right now for those particularly that this applies to this morning and really all of us, Lord, that you would take those arrows out of our back And Lord, you would begin by your loving arms, heal our wounds. Be our counselor. Come alongside us with your loving arms and heal us of that pain of being betrayed, Lord God. Lord, we want to be free of it. We want to be free of of this pain. We want to be free of this of this burden of the, and the, of the bitterness that just makes it worse. Lord God, have your way on our souls. Lord, heal our memories, Lord Jesus. Cleanse our mem- memories. May our minds be covered with your blood. Our memories be covered by your blood. Lord, thank you that you have great hope for our relationships and you have many blessings for them. And so, we, Lord, we want to walk in these six principles this week in a new and deeper way. Those, those ones that you really highlight to us, Lord, those relationships. And now we have direction from your spirit and word on, on what to do in this next step, Lord. So, Lord God, we, we thank you for that. We bless us, Lord. You said, blessed are the mercy merciful for they shall receive bless us now blessed are the peacemakers lord we want to be peacemakers bless us uh, with all that peace and that love today into this week in jesus name amen so good to be together can't wait to see you again on mother's day be sure to invite your friends and family